Hello everyone and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, or as it's known in some circles, the Pod of Lordly Might. Your place for the best in RPG interviews. I am the cleric of sound, Ryan Howard, your host. And today we are talking to none other than the creator of the Zweihander RPG, Daniel D. Fox. We had a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. It goes a little bit long because, as Daniel says himself, he is a touch on the loquacious side. So we are pretty much going to jump straight into that. Uh, just a reminder uh, for all of my American listeners, happy Thanksgiving. I am recording this the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So, everyone have a happy Thanksgiving. As a reminder, we will not have an episode next week. And then also, as a reminder, December will be a short month as well. I've got three episodes planned. And uh, getting that third episode out is actually going to be a bit of a... uh, It's going to be a bit of a feat on my end, just because of my travel schedule. Uh, But I will do it. I will get that third episode out for you. Um, I've got a lot of cool stuff planned for December. And then I'm looking down the barrel of trying to get some really cool guests for uh, January in February. I'll actually be working on that this month and into next month. Uh, So yeah, that's just some stuff coming down the pike. Um, Without further ado, though, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Rollin' Bones, Daniel D. Fox. I hope you all enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rollin' Bones, the creator of the Zweihander RPG, Mr. Daniel D. Fox. Daniel, how you doing? Hey there. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Ryan. Oh, no problem at all. What tasty beverage are you drinking tonight? So I am still working on a bottle of bourbon from uh, the Chattanooga Distillery, or the Chattanooga okay, Distilling so now Company. You're, 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 talking my, you're talking my lingo. I, too, am a, a bourbon drinker, a whiskey drinker. Mm-hmm. My go-to is Basil Hayden's, uh, gotcha. but I don't think I've had what, what you're speaking about. Mm-hmm. There we have the Chattanooga. Yeah, it is, it is very good stuff. Uh, my, my older sister actually lives in Chattanooga, and last time we were there, uh, my wife and I, uh, my wife, who is very much not a bourbon drinker, was kind enough to, uh, to <laughs> accompany my sister and I to the distillery where we tried a whole bunch of bourbons and uh, we both had one that we, we really liked. Well, you're you're in the you're certainly in the right state for that. Uh, Tennessee is aren't there. There's still dry counties in Tennessee, isn't there? Absolutely. In fact, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jack Daniels is uh, distilled in a dry county. I seem to recall, this had been years ago, we went to a bachelor party down there. We drove from Missouri. It's a 14-hour drive. And, of course, we went through the Indian Hills. And we go through all these. We go through several states, but we end up in Tennessee, and we're trying to find some place to buy booze for the party. And <laughs> sure enough, we were in a dry county, but it was not far from the Jack, county, the, the Jack Daniels Distillery, mm-hmm. which is, apparently, as you said, is a dry county. Absolutely. Yep. Daniel, we are going to start this episode the same way we start every episode. I've got these questions that I ask everyone. Uh, sometimes people get a little bit tripped up by these questions, so so we'll see <laughs> we'll see kind of how this goes. But first and foremost, we'll start with what's probably an easy one. Daniel, how did you get into RPGs? That's a good question. Uh, so I was I was eleven years old. Um, it, I remember it was winter. Uh, I remember specifically because I had been taking breakdance lessons for years. I was a breakdancer when I was a kid. Um, I've been taking about two and a half years at this point, and I was nursing a uh, hurt leg. 
and somebody had given me a copy of Keeping the Borderlands. This is I'm aging myself at this point. This I think I'm 42 now, so this was a long time ago. Um, but I had Keeping the Borderlands, and I had the monster manual from like a buddy up the street. He gave it to us, and we used to pretend in the sandbox we were monsters. But um, my my entry point to D and D was essentially that no, that module. And um, ever since then, uh, I have been a a D and D guy, right? As it's the, it's the seminal RPG where a lot of us start out, mm-hmm. and that's my that's my backstory. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, if 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 I hadn't got hurt uh, in class, uh, I probably wouldn't have found D and D until many many years later. <laughs> you traded the worm for the purple worm. Yes, yes. Although. Uh, I when, when at weddings uh, on command when I'm drinking I, I will still break dance. Uh, not quite as deft as I maybe was when I was younger, but uh, <laughs> bourbon makes me brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> as it tends to make everybody right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just makes me kind of more talkative, which as the host of a podcast is a scary proposition. It's it's a social lubricant. It's kerosene in the engine. It's, Absolutely. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> So, of all the games you've played, kind of over your your lifetime as an RPG connoisseur, what would you say is your uh, favorite? Well, I you know I, I I've played a lot of D um, and D, and honestly, I haven't played a lot of other RPGs. I've got a huge collection of games that I collect as opposed to play now. But um, for the most part, the one that I always like to go back to, we still do an annual game of this, is a D and D. It it and maybe it's just because it's it, for me it's kind of nostalgia. Um, there's just something fun and simplistic about it. I know when I play as a player as opposed to a game master, I want a simpler game like AD and D. I want a beer and pretzel style game. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have the same character I've been playing. Gosh, oh my! Uh, since I was 17, so what? Almost three decades. It's like a 12th level wizard and a 7th level fighter because he was level drained last time we played about five years ago. Um, but uh, that's that's how old school I guess you could say I am. Not that that's necessarily a badge of honor, but uh, A D and D is my is my go to. If someone's like, "Hey, we're gonna play a game tonight," I'm like, "Can we play a D and D? That'd be awesome if we could." <laughs> now, a lot of times people struggle to kind of remember that that first character that they played. But if you can remember him, or if you can, if you can remember your your most memorable oh. character, what was the first character you remember playing? Wow. So I was I was always put in the chair as dungeon master. That was I, I and and I think you have to have a certain personality for it. like I just kind of gravitated toward that. So my opportunities to play characters was it wasn't that often. Mm-hmm. Um, the character I spoke about before, his name is Chris, uh, very simply named. Uh, he's by far my oldest character, but one perhaps most memorable is a wizard. I want to say it's like second edition D anD D, right right around the time then like wizard kits and fighter kits and stuff came out. Mm-hmm. He was this uh, ice mage named Lancerol, and he was uh, he was kind of a dick because you know I was a teen at the time and you know playing a dick at the table is kind of like what I did I guess I don't know I just kind of <laughs> and it seemed like Wizard was a good fit for that so that was by far my favorite character It's probably the most annoying to the players around me and the in the dungeon master who was running it mm-hmm. um, but uh, over the years um, he kind of it's the one I kind of. I always remember like playing when I was younger, and even though I don't have my character sheet for him any longer, um, but um, that's the one that just sticks out to me. He was, you know, he's kind of that seminal character I had gotten above like name level back in AD and D days, and it just, you know, it, uh, that was kind of like when I think about my D and D experience as a player, that's the that's the character that really sticks out. 
Now, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about your, your kind of play style when you were a, a younger man, but as, as we all grow in the hobby, we all develop distinct styles as both dungeon masters and, and players. How yeah. would you describe yours as, at this moment now as both a dungeon master and a player? Well, as a, as a dungeon master or a game master, I guess, whichever, whichever nomenclature you prefer, uh, depending on what game you're playing, but for the most part... I'd say I'm I'm probably more even-handed than I was when I was younger. I was certainly a killer DM, right? Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of a rite of passage, for, right? It's kind of a rite of passage as a game master as you're kind of you know going through the ropes because at, at least when I was younger, it's kind of like is very adversarial, like player versus dungeon master. So anything you could do that was underhanded to pull it against like six plus players was like awesome because it's six players against one. Um, but obviously, as I've gotten, you know, got older, you know, past my teens into my early 20s and 30s and now 40s, um, I think my game style has certainly matured it, and, and matured in the sense that it's I run a political thriller. That's kind of the games that I run. That's kind of what mm -hmm. I gravitate toward. And, and I try to set up stories in the same way. I really like mystery and conspiracies, uh, particularly political intrigue. That's the kind of stuff that I run now as a as, as a game master and that kind of, I guess, kind of suits a lot of what I like in just general media, like movies and film and and books um, and novels and such. Um, but as a player, I'm, a, I guess, I'm a little bit different. I, I, I like to consider myself a uh, a higher level murder hobo. Uh, <laughs> I haven't quite let that part of myself go. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to some degree, I'm still that annoying player at the table. I'm loquacious, so that that certainly contributes to it. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I like, as a player, I just like games, I, I like to play games differently than I run them. And, and, I, I, and I think that's just, uh, you know, in some way, like, it's this kind of weird sense of like, okay, I've got all this responsibility as a game master, when I'm a player, I can like, let all that stuff go and just be unfiltered and, and still play an interesting, funny character, because I like playing humorous characters. Um, but a lot of the kind of like, super mature, gritty, grim stuff kind of like washes away and and, and I kind of play that, uh, I don't know, a 12th level murder hobo, I guess, at that point. A lot of us, actually all of us, who come to the table on a regular basis have found a lot of very great memories, a lot of life-defining moments at the table. So, Daniel, what is your fondest RPG memory? Wow, um, that's a great question. A really good question. I, I appreciate that. Um, I would say it's probably around the time that I was running Planescape. Um, we had just slowly transitioned away from Forgotten Realms. Um, I kind of fell into Planescape haphazardly, a box that was given to me for Christmas. Mm. And I just fell into it. I was like, this is the most amazing setting. It was doing something so drastically different than I think we were really accustomed to when we were younger. Um, it was just so weird. And, of course, we transported our high-level characters into the world of Planescape, into the, the city of Sigiler. Sigil or however, however you know you, you choose to pronounce it, and the, the the kind of one of the defining moments was when the characters like when I really when D and D like that maturity part of it really kind of clicked for me. Mm -hmm. We were running this adventure in Sigil, and it was a, it is a street level crime drama, and and the characters were kind of wading through the ditch, this like this sewer thing that runs through the entire city, and we based the entire kind of like the headquarters is based in the sewers and stuff. And like at that time, like I remember fondly, like 
it's the moment where I kind of made the decision to say, you know what, the type of games we've ran historically where they're kind of like, you know, like kill lots of orcs and fire lots of fireballs and use lightning and teleport and stuff like that. Like those things were still fun and important, but I think I began to realize and understand with Planescape what role-playing really meant. Perhaps it's because Planescape kind of appealed to me on on such a very different level than most traditional fantasy did. I was never a fan of Lord of the Rings. I was never a fan of most fantasy as a kid. Um, So coming into Planescape kind of opened up this whole new world for me. So I think that when I look back at my experience as a as a game master, like I think really the time was when we were running Planescape and that that whole street level adventure, like it just it all kind of coalesced at that point to, to kind of really define, I think, the kind of game master I am today. You know, gosh, twenty odd years later, um, it's still I still carry a lot of that forward. Like I have a lot of fun memories around that, and uh, the player, I think the players too. Many who I still play with, I have, I'm blessed with the opportunities to have a lot of the same players at the table but um i think you know they would probably agree too our game changed dramatically uh once we started playing landscape and to this day i mean we still talk about it fondly it's like you know and we can see kind of artifacts of those older games and the newer games that run as well it's interesting that you went that direction with planescape because a lot of people a lot of people would go into planescape like this is our high magic high fuckery setting and you're like, no, we're going to do a street-level crime drama within the realm yeah. of Planescape, which honestly is a fantastic way to run Planescape because there's so much just weird nonsense all coalescing within yeah. within Sigil that it, it would be interesting to see just kind of what like people on the streets' lives are like within a setting where gods and demons are walking around just however— yeah, and I think and that's a good point too. I think in a lot of ways, like because I think when we went in, we went into to Planescape, we went into it believing it would be like it would satisfy all these high magic things we'd really wanted to see at the game table. But mm-hmm. I, for me, I felt what I kind of learned is that you, you know with Planescape, you kind of kind of pressure you got to you got to put your tongue in your cheek, right? Because it's kind of it's 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 terribly clever. Mm-hmm. But but if you strip away mm-hmm. all of the demons and devils and everybody passing in and out of Sigil, you have this really rich mythology of the city itself and the factions it's the first time i've ever seen anything like that i guess in an rpg and and really it was kind of foundational in that way where i never really i guess because i didn't have experience with older other other rpgs it just seemed so unique and interesting and that i started i remember thinking in my mind i was like this feels like it feels like a story that has yet like a long-term like novel like there, there's characters you can get who can be tied to these factions we're not really talking about levels from the perspective of characters now we're talking about character stories and character development mm-hmm. and and when we and i remember that first our first game session of planescape was just a giant giant mess but we played planescape for many many years without ever leaving the city mm-hmm. because we kind of viewed it i guess in the same way that you I, some people i'm not a star trek fan but they talk about deep space nine like everything happens at the space station like yep. in my mind everything happened in sigil and all the outside influence and the factions who came into play with it it, it it felt it reminded me a lot of the way Frank Herbert's Dune was kind of told. It was science fantasy. It was something else. Mm-hmm. And although I wouldn't consider myself a science fiction fan by any means, um, it kind of plucked at those strings. And, and and I guess the melodies between like Dune and Planescape kind of it harmonized at some point for me. And it kind of drove me toward this uh, very different gameplay style. And and now looking back in retrospect, in particular, like I look at uh, the television show, The Wire, 
mm-hmm. uh, and which is a fantastic, fantastic show. And and I'd like to think that my game was like that. It probably wasn't because you know <laughs> your rose tint, rose rose color, rose tinted glasses. Looking mm-hmm. back, but um, I would like to think that I was reaching towards something a little bit different because I remember when the Factals Handbook came out. Not to get too nerdy here, but um, the Factals Handbook came out and it talked about or it spoke about how the factions are vying for control of the city and against an invisible force, right? The lady of pain and the, and the, her weird Davis things that moved around and spoke in pictographs. And it, it just something within that book just kind of like really, I, I made this, had this decision point in me. I remember as like, you know what, all these demons and devils and the blood war and all that fun stuff, the great Modron March and all those things are really fun and interesting and awesome to read about. But I was more interested in how that impacted the city hmm. and that, I think is what kind of drove me toward which I've repeated this campaign style many, many times over is the idea of urban fantasy uh, as a theme for RPGs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, someday I'll write something that's urban fantasy. Uh, but I, I, I've had this, I have my own homebrew like everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have this city called Cahabro, uh that sits in this river called the Karnak. And in a lot of ways that, kind of represents like a scaffolding so to speak that i could hang all my old planescape experience on from the factions trying to control the city to this the gritty crime drum on the street to outside influences trying to influence the inside of the city the mysterious benefactors or malefactors of the city like those things just really kind of resonate with me and and i carried those forward and it felt I guess you know, coming looking at playscape from a very through a high low, high fantasy lens, like I just found, I just kind of found this way to make it resonate with what my players and myself enjoyed, and that's kind of what it turned into. It turned into a a, a a crime drama, for lack of better lack of a better term at the time. Um, and uh, still to this day, I uh, you know I look upon playscape fondly. That's a setting. Um, that's a setting I'll be examining probably with my my Saturday group. Uh, I I, mm-hmm. I teased them a little bit. They rescued a character from an island that was not supposed to be where it was, and found that underneath the island, the monster on the island was hoarding a whole bunch of treasure, and he had a spell jammer there. Oh, very cool! That and sounds like a great setup. <laughs> yeah, at, at some point, once they've wrapped up kind of the main story, they they've already said we're getting back on that thing, and we're gonna go travel the multiverse because i told them what it was none of them are, are familiar with the the old ad and d or second edition stuff like that and what what's inevitably going to end up happening is they're going to end up in sigil and i'm going to explore the planescape setting in fifth edition the same way i'm doing with my wednesday group in dark sun yeah i you know it's interesting i'm i'm that's interesting because i think that particularly for players who weren't who didn't play the early stuff there's a lot of great narrative stuff you can kind of pull forward, you can borrow, you can steal, um, and and it will be intriguing in ways that players who perhaps grew up in fifth edition, as an example, or started with fifth edition or even fourth edition for that matter, never really knew or understood. Because I think we all know that, you know, Wizards of the Coast has kind of put a lot of those that old IP to pasture, those old box sets, Dark Sun, as you spoke about. Mm-hmm. I think it was remade in fourth edition, but wasn't too hot. But a lot of the the rich narrative buried in those box sets, like are 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 waiting to be unearthed by intrepid game masters like you. 
um, who are going to introduce that to your to your players. I think those are fantastic campaign settings to pull for, particularly the way you set it up, because you kind of kind of you can, it's kind of almost like introducing a spell jamming ship's kind of like it's like Pandora's box, right? Yeah. You can where do you want to go next, right? Mm-hmm. What are we going to get? What kind of trouble are we going to get into? And you can really kind of pull them into any sort of older campaign setting you wish and want at that point. That's really cool. Now. Unfortunately, we, we've been riding high on fond memories of RPGs. Unfortunately, we've got to go down into the uh, into the abyss a little bit because there is, all right. for all the good players that have been around our tables over the years, there have also been some bad players. And the worst of these, we reserve a certain term, and that term is that guy. So, Daniel, <laughs> what is your best or worst that guy story? Oh, this is... This is uh, so... Uh, Ryan, this is a great line of questioning. No one's ever asked me this. This is fantastic. Uh, there's a guy. Oh, my God. You know, everybody's got that guy. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of those guys and those girls. The first, the one that's probably more comedic, there was a guy in <laughs> in college. He's a Vampire in the Masquerade role player. We did, I didn't really know him very well, but a buddy of mine, Tim Coron, he said, hey, let's bring uh, cornbread to the table and see what he's like. And this, this kid, I don't know his name to this day. But everybody called him Cornbread, and and I'm sure it was something related to something really profane. But um, he gamed with us. He gamed with us for about five about five sessions, mm-hmm. and I, you know we're kind of elite level nerds. Like we we didn't game at game stores. We didn't go to conventions. We certainly didn't game with outsiders that often. And when we bring an outsider in, it was always like on a temporary basis, and we set it up. We're like, look, this is temporary. We're a really close group of friends of like eight to ten people. So for pulling you in, you know, just know that we're going to put you through trial by fire. So this guy, Cornbread, <laughs> he played this dwarf. It was like the most stereotypical dwarf. You know, it's like mm-hmm. he had a beard. He worshipped Plant Clan Geddon Silverhand, whatever his name was. He'd always swing for the leg with his hammer and like steal their treasure. And we're like, nah, fuck this guy. He's out because of the t- because. We at that point, because we're you know we bleed ourselves or still I guess to some degree think we're like uber nerds and like oh this stuff isn't like this is the stuff we did back in high school, but more importantly, <laughs> uh, he wore this studded belt and I remember that my girlfriend at the time she was so mad at him because he would like stand around the table and scraped up the paint behind it anyway. He was just he was like your your traditional RPG player, which is I'm sure he'd be fine for other groups, but you know we were. We were just kind of snooty, I guess, to some degree. We were just we were just so afraid of having outsiders come in and infect our game with traditional D and Disms that we we had to kick him to the curb. That's that's the that's the it's comedic to us, but the the worst the worst that guy was a that guy that girl combo. Oh my gosh, I I I've forgotten about this guy completely. <laughs> so uh, uh, his name was Brian, uh, or as he was known uh, around the table, Al Snow's uh, cousin, because he looked like Al Snow from from the oh, wrestling wwf right <laughs> so i had been i had been gaming for i'd stopped gaming for about five years mm-hmm. and my two buddies were like gotta get back into it you gotta play some games gotta run some games we're gonna play D again i'm like i think i was like 28 at the time i'm like all right all right well, let's start looking for people and um i was playing dark age of camelot my short-lived mmo days and these people here in Kansas City were like, hey, we want a game. And I'm like, cool, we'll come to the table. Because most of our friends had moved away at this point, hadn't moved back yet to Kansas City. So we had this really, had a really rough first session where it was like three of my closest friends and Al Snow, uh, <laughs> Al Snow's clone, um, and his girlfriend, or his wife, I guess she, she was. They weren't married yet. But um, 
they had this really weird terse exchange in character in the game. The dice weren't quite working the way that Al Snow's clone wanted it to. And his wife was trying to calm him down because he's clearly getting worked up and upset. And I'm a, I'm a pretty fair game master. I'm coldly neutral, but I'm fair. But he was doing things that were like clearly trying to disrupt the game, disrupt other people's fun in particular. Because mm-hmm. I'm usually not, I'm not usually a person that says no. I'm a, I'm a yes but person. Um, so I'm giving a lot. I'm giving him a lot of leeway because he hadn't game with us before. So he, the dice didn't quite work out his way, and his wife tried to calm him down, and he like shrugs her off and like hits her on accident, and like we stop the game right there, and we we dismissed everybody. My buddies, of course, were still there, and the Alstos clone, or Alstos clone and his wife goes home and i'm like i'm not playing D guys fuck this shit and he's like no 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 no, just don't invite them back i'm like oh yeah i can do that right <laughs> so uh that that kicked off you know another you know that kicked off my gaming from 27 on to where i'm at now i'm 42 so uh mm-hmm. that's 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 that worst that guy's <laughs> story and I, I have no idea where they're at at this point i have no idea whatever happened to them i know they were renting a house for my mom at one point i mean Kansas City is a small town. That's weird. But uh, nonetheless, that's my that guy story. And he was the worst because he clearly had anger issues and had, li- I mean, he literally hit his wife on accident. Like, and clearly he'd been, shr- he'd been, I think he'd done this before. But, mm-hmm. oh gosh. Yeah. Here's a, here's a lot of, a lot of those guys and those girls out there. And mm-hmm. God bless them. I hope they find peace and find a gaming group they can enjoy. Now, you, you called him Al Snow's cousin. Uh, did you call no. her head? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a she was a very very lovely person named Rebecca. <laughs> she was very kind, very nice. In fact, mm-hmm. I had never met her husband up until that point because she was we like I said we we had like some dark age of Camelot MMO. God, this is so long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I played it for a hot minute, and they lived in the same town, and that's why I met her and then met him. So I I <laughs> I literally can't remember this guy's name. Like, this is the first time I ever met him. Uh, and the, or the first time I ever gamed the thing, but I met him twice before when we were preparing characters for Session Zero. Um, but um, she was very lovely. Rebecca's very lovely, but um, her husband was a, a, a dirtbag. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, you, you mentioned some of the uh, the D&D-isms that, that you and your, your earlier days were, were trying to keep out of your game. So that brings up another interesting question. Some of the stuff that... that finds its way into RPGs we come to accept and even love, but some of it we just kind of hate. So what's your least favorite RPG cliche? Oh, oh which one should I choose? Uh, I think it's, I think, okay, so I think I mentioned before, like, I uh, I have this aversion toward fantasy, which is silly to say because I, I, I write RPGs, but mm-hmm. I, I, I never could quite get into Lord of the Rings. I can never get quite into the archetypes that were introduced into that. So I feel that, and maybe this is kind of the reasons why I wrote Zweihander. Like, I just, I dislike the traditional archetypes we've seen time and time again in RPGs. And in D&D, uh, I think over its additions, with perhaps exception to the current one, is... Is really bad about this. They perpetuate these tropes. Like, it's the male strong fighter and the short dwarf the axe and uh, it's the lithe sly rogue. Like, what about the rogue who's really terrible at stealing things and is just a, you know, is just a, a good person? Like, what about the really charitable, like, you know, like, pacifistic, like, fighter type? Like, those things you can't, you couldn't really do, I mean, and to some degree you still can't do in D, D&D, but 
um, a lot of those traditional kind of tropey characters, like it's the elven woman with the bow, it's the female priestess, like the the dragon lance archetypes. While they were interesting when I was a kid, you know, now it's just those things just don't appeal to me. And I think that that maybe that's perhaps why I'm really kind of. I guess I'm kind of make myself sound like a terrible person, but this is probably why I don't play a lot of games with strangers because I'm people that I don't know because I do have this. I've ran games at a con. I've never run games at a convention, but I've ran a couple games at a game store which were pleasant. But you know, um, of those three games I've ran, one was great, two were not good um, because I have I I put a lot of expectations i guess on players to be like my game group but that's irrational right mm. so i think that when players bring forward like these traditional tropey type characters it kind of rubs me the wrong way because it's kind of like one of those things where it's like been there done that let's try something new let's try something different let's try let's bring let's pull you out of your comfort zone because i feel that rpgs and, and let me get a little loquacious here i feel rpgs are that way for us to explore things uh which we are not comfortable with i I, i'm a big believer in rpgs as catharsis Mm. i strongly believe that's why it attracts a lot of marginalized people it's certainly i mean i'm not marginalized by any means but when i was a kid i was picked on i think it attracted a lot of kids when they're picked on when they're younger and people who are marginalized on the fringe of society because then you could be what you want And, and i feel that through that lens like if you think about it from the perspective of like drama or theater like in some ways it is kind of like this place where you can kind of focus all that energy and create different personalities so i guess that i kind of look at it that way like i see rpgs as an opportunity to explore different parts of ourselves and even though i certainly have a special place in my heart for a beer and pretzel game i still want to play in a character that's not quite doesn't quite match the norms or the tropey archetypes we would kind of associate with most rpgs i try to play characters that are not necessarily disruptive but different enough to be like oh well that's an intriguing combination i never thought of making something like that um those are the things that kind of i guess kind of bug me about rpgs uh especially um when i i mean i think especially when you look back at the d20 days when everything was ogl d20 games like back in third edition 3.5 like it just felt a lot of the same was being kind of recreated and recloned and restamped and Nothing was really being done any intriguing. I think a lot of ways that I kind of use that 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 energy, I guess, to 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 decide to like make a make a game because I think that's there's no better way to like drive you toward design something if if you're the game you're playing you don't like or the things that you're seeing you don't necessarily agree with. It's a it's a good way to kind of spur creativity. And I know you you can certainly identify this. Like mm-hmm. every game master is a game designer at the end of the day. Every game master is a game designer if they're introducing house rules. And if players are having a hand in that, they're also game designers. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not monetizing the product or selling it online, you're still designing games. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, archetypes uh, and tropes, like, I'm not, I just don't like that stuff, I yeah. guess I'm saying. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. No judgment for those who do, though. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. It's just not my, not my cup of tea, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The way I see a lot of that stuff, and this is a a bit of a digression here, the way I see a lot of that stuff is, okay, that's a perfectly fine starting point. Yes. If you want to come to the table with a level one or level three or wherever we're starting character, that is at this point kind of an archetype, um, seems very standard. Cool, that's a great place to start. But by the end of the game, by the time we're done... If your character has not changed at all, then I will wonder kind of why you came to the table. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point too. I think that you know, and, and maybe and it's it's a very good point. I think that RPGs, in particular, the story, the the adventure, the campaign, whatever 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 vector you come into the game at, um, that that players as they level up, you're using traditional D and D for just talking about through the D and D lens for a moment. If we're talking about traditional D and D, as your character levels and gains powers and the story unfolds, the narrative should certainly have an impact on the way the character is. And, and I and I think a lot of people play that way. I, pro- I probably not do. I'm probably doing a disservice uh, to people who play D and I'm not meaning to do a disservice by any means, but I think that you know, the story should certainly impact the growth of the character, not just from a numeric and mathematical perspective on your on your sheet that's messy and scribbly because you've leveled up so many times, but also it's your character's personality should change. And, and I feel that fifth edition D and D has really done a great job introducing bonds uh, and flaws and a lot of the personality traits they've kind of have kind of bolted onto the fifth edition system to help, I guess in some ways kind of provide training wheels for role play, which is smart. It's a very, very smart play to do, especially because we know that D and D is so focused on, getting new players in with a very with ease of access and accessibility at the key. So having those tools there, I think really helps kind of train players up mm-hmm. to where they can eventually remove the training wheels. And then the story and the narrative and the character grows along with the character's level as well. So it's a really good call out. Now we get into the last introductory question here. This is one that has stumped many people. And, uh, Daniel, the answer to this can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> plays Weihander, not Warhammer. <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> I, I, okay, so this is, this is probably going to be a little bit controversial. Um, and I should set this up before I go any further because I know I'm going to piss off some people. Um, and, not, and I don't mean to. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a deep abiding love for Warhammer. Um, I certainly didn't find Warhammer until many, many years into my, my, my gaming experience. I was well into my, probably my mid-30s when I discovered it. And um, I, I just don't like the old world. It, it, I, I like the themes. I like what they're trying to communicate. But at the end of the day, it, it's a lot like D&D. And what I feel, where I feel Warhammer has gone wrong, because, you know, now discovering Warhammer much later on in the process before I was a kid and discovering it in my, in my 30s, I looked at it very differently. And my introductory point was first edition Warhammer. So, like, 1987, like, Phil Gallagher, Graham, da- or, uh, Graham Davis, like, you know, like, that was really intriguing stuff because it was telling a very different story than... Second edition and third edition Warhammer, and, and, and to some degree even fourth edition, it felt so not, unlike D and D, the game world itself. I was like, "This is super cool," uh, but then second edition and third edition, and I wouldn't say fourth edition by any means. Fourth edition's got its it's got, it got its positives as well, but um, what I feel Warhammer has kind of missed on some of the deeper themes of the game now, as opposed to chaos everywhere, like. There's chaos warriors and mutations and all kinds of crazy stuff running around. It's like, what happened to the, the cults like being like the driving force in the game? What happened to the subverted politics and the, the horror beneath the surface, right? Not the out in the open, monsters running around the countryside, murdering people like, you know, stars falling through the sky, that sort of stuff. Like the stuff that, that Graham Davis and, and others have written, um, uh, Jim Bamber and others that really kind of keyed in on what I felt were the most important elements of, of Warhammer. 
And um, I feel that some of those things have been missed. Now, I will say, you know, Greg Davis working on the new Warhammer 4th edition, and especially in The, the Enemy Within, um, it feels like it's kind of making a return, uh, which is awesome. Um, you know, with, 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 with Dom at Cubicle 7 and others writing for them. Andy Law, unfortunately, he recently left. But um, I feel Warhammer is reaching back toward that. But I think at the end of the day, like, if you were to say, I want to run a dark fantasy game, and I want to create my own game world. Most people will approach Warhammer and try to strip away the world, but it doesn't work that way. Um, the world and the mechanics are so tightly wound together that they're almost inextricable. So when I say uh, plays Vyhander, <laughs> I literally mean that. Like, if you want something that uses a similar thematic approach, a similar mechanical approach as, as Warhammer, but don't want the old world... Zweihander is kind of the answer to that. So um, I, it's funny you should you ask that question because I thought about putting on a shirt uh, five years ago <laughs> when I was writing Zweihander. Um, that was the peak of like my being disenchanted with third edition Warhammer, um, mm-hmm. despite the fact that I had a really good writing team, but was horribly mismanaged by Fantasy Flight Games, um, the IP that is. <clears throat> you know now now it's like play both. Uh, I like Warhammer. I like Zweihander. I play them both. Um, but uh, if I had to choose, like gun to my head, it'd be Zweihander. I'd say, mm-hmm. I'd say play Zweihander. Put it on the shirt. That's what goes on the shirt. All right. So now that we're there, let's let's jump full on into Zweihander. And I, okay. I really am interested to hear kind of what it was that drew you to dark fantasy because I found myself very recently. Um, be- because of a D&D game that I've been playing, kind of working with a similar, almost Solomon Kane level of, of dark yeah. fantasy in some of the stories that I'm trying to write. Yeah. Uh, Solomon Kane, I think, is pretty foundational for me when I think about like the influences in Zweihander. Um, I, I, I certainly read Robert Howard's other work, mm-hmm. you know, King Conan, Called, Conquer, Red Sonja, all that stuff. Um, but I think that Solomon Kane really appealed to me because it was it was Amerocentric as opposed to Eurocentric, even though it like it was clearly like in America that was still <clears throat> playing with European tropes. Mm-hmm. And granted, I think that coming from a D and D background and reading you know other novels that like we do when we're younger, like all of our RPGs are the most the most popular RPGs are Eurocentric. That's yep. the one that we can identify, right? So mm-hmm. for me, dark fantasy was kind of my you know, like, I just, I was tired of high fantasy. I was tired of magic. I was tired of the antagonistic relationship between players and game masters and magic. And a perfect shining example of this, I remember the first time my players playing D&D teleported into a tower, dropped three delayed blast fireballs and teleported out and decimated this enemy. You know, I'm like, oh, cool. So if you can do that, I can do that. So I killed the characters in the middle of a camp one night. They're like, wait, that's not fair. And I'm like... Well, if you can do it, I can do it too. And then I realize over time, I'm like, part of that is not necessarily the antagonistic relationship between the players and myself, but the system was kind of, in some ways, kind of fomenting that. And we were certainly a group of mature players, and we handled it well, and we moved forward. But um, it made me realize that magic was really kind of game-breaking, game-breaking in the right ways. But if everyone can use magic, then it's not really magic. It's not special. It's just another game mechanic you use it table like i've got my sword i got my magic i got my cleric spells let's go um and it it doesn't feel magical it didn't feel special so i think 
dark fantasy, in particular low fantasy, appeals to me because you can kind of, as opposed to using, as opposed to painting magic across the canvas, the big broad roller, like if you're rolling a wall with a roller, you dip it in paint and you roll it out, and it's like this big streak. Like that's how D&D treats magic in most RPGs. I feel magic in fantasy in particular work best for me and my group when I can paint it with thin brush strokes. And as the story is told, you begin to paint a portrait. And that portrait can portray something that's very high fantasy and very different at the end of the story. But when it begins, it begins with a whimper. And it builds over time. And as you paint those thin brush strokes in the story, underscoring like, here's this kind of mysterious thing. And oh, and here's this really cool magic thing to happen. Oh my gosh, like this person can use magic. Oh, I can get magic too. And I can bargain with demons for it. Like to me, that's more intriguing than simply saying, okay, I'm level one wizard. I get sleep. I get magic missile. I get blah, blah spell. I can use them X number of times a day. Let's go. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's what where dark fantasy really appeals to me. But um, conversely on the low, low fantasy side, uh, low fantasy, like in a lot of ways, I mean, the one we can immediately gravitate to is George R. R. Martin. You know that entire series. I, I, if you're just talking about not talking about the books, but talk about the actual television show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the actual displays of magic are very few and far between. There's not a lot of combat and fighting in that. There's like five major battle scenes, and it ran for a decade. So, to me, like telling a really good story is using these things and making them punch, as opposed to like a constant drumbeat of like. Fantasy, combat, magic, blah, 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 monster, dragon, all this stuff. Like, to me, a a story, the way I like to craft stories is through the lens of, like, it's a humanocentric world. These are characters we can identify with because we're playing people who are rooted in this world, have something to care about, have families. And things are going to build over time and destiny is going to change our characters. We're going to make choices where we don't change the world. But the world changes us. And I think that's the important crux right there between high fantasy and low fantasy is that in high fantasy games, your characters are changing the world um, Mm. in in very Mm. directional ways. In low fantasy, your character is going to be changed by the world around them. And the question is, will you devolve to become like the beast you're fighting? Will you use magic and sacrifice a piece of your soul to survive? And, And to me, that is really where... Zweihander started, why low fantasy and dark fantasy are kind of at the fore of its development. Not because other RPGs weren't doing, because they certainly were, but um, I felt at the time, you know, it was kind of my response to what I loved and hated about D&D and just fantasy in general. I was like, I want, this is the type of fantasy I want to read, the type of fantasy I want to run at the table, the type of fantasy I want to write um, if I was going to be a game designer, and that's kind of where I where I started. Now, one of the things that I've I've read in in Zweihander, I I have a copy of Zweihander, and then one of the things that I heard you talk a lot about with uh, Hambone and Stew on Vintage RPG was the random character table. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that and and what what it was that that made you want to create this, this comprehensive table that if you roll a few dice, you can end up with some absolutely insane characters. Yeah, so I think this this kind of plays back to what we talked about with tropes like i feel i feel that with zweihander i wanted to write something that would you know rules as written force players uh to create something they would not think to normally piece together i like to believe that a, an rpg character is not a puzzle 
but instead a mosaic. A mosaic comprised of different pieces and different colors of different sizes of glass. And up close, you can't really see how they fit together. But when you take two steps back, the portrait begins to form. So if I w- that was kind of my, my design principles, like character creation should feel like a mosaic. So because I knew I wanted to put a ton of options in the game, well-balanced options for that matter, mathematically balanced, and a ton of professions and a number of ancestries and personality traits and body types and, you know, and so on and so forth, I felt the only way to get players to buy into that is to basically say, okay, um, you're not creating a puzzle. You're creating a mosaic. So randomly dice everything from the top down and show me your answers, right? So the way that the character sheet works on Zweihander, it's kind of like Mad Libs. You fill in all these different blanks with all these different attributes, and then you read five key sentences. And those five key sentences tells a story about your character that you wouldn't think to normally piece together. One, because um, the game tells you to randomize it. And two, there's just so many options. I mean, imagine, if you will, like somebody who's completely new to to gaming, and you run it and you're like, okay, we're going to play Pathfinder. Here's five books. Pick your best option. They're going to be like, what? Because we know that Pathfinder First Edition has a ton of options, and there's best options and bad options. But to play Pathfinder, you have tons of options. And that's not a bad thing by any means. Don't get me wrong. But challenging a player just to be like, read all this and figure out what you want to do is 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 a big ask. So instead, the way and, – and, and granted, Viner is a big book. It's a, it's a huge book of options, 668 pages. But it's, it's not all rules. It's all options. So the best way to get people to say, don't be intimidated by the size of the book. Do not be intimidated by the number of choices. Instead – let the dice make the choices for you and see what you come up with. So we knew that when making that system, making that work, there had to be enough options that felt equally weighted, meaning if you're playing a berserker, a bravo, a barber surgeon, or a laborer, they would all feel weighty in the world. They'd all have something they could do that's unique. So we leaned into that random randomization element because there's no other way you could possibly ask somebody to scrub through 72 professions and 10 ancestries and 26 different personality traits and this and that and this because there's so many dimensions to Zweihander and character creation like you couldn't ask somebody to do that on their own instead you say hey take a character sheet spend 10 minutes roll everything randomly and show me your work tell me what you came up with so now when you pick up uh, a game of Zweihander and you have uh, that character in front of you, you have all these compelling attributes uh, that you can tell. You can write, you rattle off those five sentences Mad Lib style, and you tell their players in the game master what you came up with. And like I mentioned before, the metaphor of like stepping back from the mosaic. That's when you see how it all fits together, and it kind of stokes this imagination. I feel to cre- to look at the way characters are created and to make something that's truly different than what you're accustomed to to pull you out of your comfort zone for what you may normally play in a role-playing game and really think about how these things impact the characters and how the story will be formed with the other players at the table. That that was that I felt was absolutely necessary to make Zweihander work because otherwise I don't feel that it would have succeeded by simply saying, pick an option and go. Now granted, people who are playing Zweihander for a long time, including my game table, we do pick a lot of options because we know the book's inside out as do a lot of veterans, Zweihander players. But the recommended approach anytime you get into the game is to say, grab a pair of percentiles, 
get that character sheet, get a pencil, and randomly dice everything because you're going to come up with something that you've probably never played before. Um, and, and I guarantee that the way those characters come together, it will be it will create a, a pastiche, a mosaic, if you will, of a character that will tell a really compelling story before you even step into the game world. As it stands right now, what has been released for Zweihander, and what do you see coming down the pike as far as uh, more content for the game? Yeah, so Zweihander, uh, and, and I'm sure some people probably already know this, but Zweihander was actually released back in 20, uh, 2018. Um, it started as a Kickstarter, as my first RPG I ever wrote. It raised, you know, $68,000 in Kickstarter, raised 138000 on BackerKit in Crowdox, and, and it turned into something much bigger than I thought it would be. So, turned to today, um, you know, we've basically been re-releasing all of our content with better print, better quality, around all that fun stuff. So, this year in July, we had Zweihander Revised Core Rulebook. Just last month, we had Mongosh, a supplement for the book, um, which doesn't add any rules bloat or, you know, any sort of power characters. It's all like built synonymous with the Zweihander core book. In December, we will have a player's handbook that comes out. That's the first 10 chapters of the, of the core rule book for players only. Um, we have a character folio. We have a game master folio. We have six different sets of cards. Um, we have a game master screen, a game master play mat. Basically we went through the motions in the, in the past two years to provide as much content that you would see from D and D in mm -hmm. three years uh, because we knew that we wanted to provide as many gameplay tools as possible because some RPG creators will simply go say, okay, here's my book and here's an adventure and that's it. I'm going to work on the new thing. Instead, we're saying we want to provide you with the most value uh, from well playtested material in a, in a, and give you the tools you need to play characters to run the game. Um, and that was something that was very important to me, both as an RPG collector and as a designer um, is to ensure that the game felt supported. Um, and that's extended on now, uh, in the, over the, this actually, I think we just came up on our one year anniversary. So DMs Guild on DriveThruRPG, where you can take D&D &D and create your own stuff and monetize it, we have the exact same thing in DriveThruRPG, the Grown Perilous Library. We now have 27 adventures uh, in English and in Spanish and in Polish now there. Uh, there are 67 total supplements that sit in the Grown Perilous Library that's been created by the community. So we have a really strong community backings, and we know we, we, we felt that because we provided all these other accessories and tools and play aids, that it helped enable people make to, people to make their own Zweihander stuff. And that's really where I feel the success has been for new content is being generated by users. Um, but as for what's coming down the pike in 2020, uh, we have Colonial Gothic which is a supernatural horror game that takes place during the American Revolution, Revolutionary War um, that I am a, a, I'm a developer on. Uh, it's being written by Richard Iorio out of Chicago. This will be the fourth edition of his game, but a complete refresh, rebrand of it. We've got a big campaign coming out called Queen of Embers, which uh, I've been playtesting and running on Twitch for about 54 game sessions now. It's been over a year since I've been running that. We have two other projects that I can't talk about yet. One is a really, really, really big one. Um, I'm super stoked to talk about soon, uh, maybe in December once we get pen put to paper. We're so close right now. And that's that's in the bag pretty much. And then another one in the latter part of 2020 that will be an extension to Zweihander. But every game we're working on uh, will use the, the Zweihander game engine. So 
despite the fact that Zweihander may be a Renaissance Eurocentric low fantasy RPG, that game engine, in the same way that D and D was flexed in the late two thousand early two thousands with the D twenty engine, powered by Zweihander is basically the way we're kind of creating new games. Everything will bolt onto the Zweihander game engine, so you can move from Zweihander to Colonial Gothic to other games uh, within that realm, and it will feel familiar. It'll still be new, but it'll feel familiar. The mechanics will be similar. It'll still have a profession-based system with professional trades. It'll still be skill-based, D100. Um, but it will play with those kind of mechanics a little bit in ways that are unique and good for the game that it, the game genre is trying to emulate. A lot, lot of content. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, in content in the sense that this is stuff that we've been working on for a long time. Um, meaning we're not we're not crafting whole cloth at this point. We're taking stuff we've play tested, that we've smoke tested, that has undergone a serious amount of scrutiny around my game table and others um, to ensure that it is playable and that it's evergreen content. Meaning we don't have to correct it further down the road. We don't want to have to errata some power because it's too powerful. As an example, um, I'm. I mentioned before I game with a lot of the same people I've game with for many years. Some of the newer players who are the the kind of the the leaders of uh, our, our our development studio, Grim Apparel Studios, Mike Bossler and Adam Rose. Um, they've been play testing a lot of the stuff we're we're just releasing now uh, for about two years. So um, and, and not for lack of speed or uh, or want to get things out quicker, but because we felt it needed to be very heavily play tested. We take a lot of pride in that battery playtesting we do. So every every new thing for Zweihander, every content thing, if you want to call it that, um, that we'll be releasing in 2020 and 2021 and beyond, uh, will have already gone a lot of that playtesting that is sometimes missing in some indie RPGs. Now, uh, the last thing I want to talk about with you real quick, um, as we're kind of running up against time, you are actually the director of games for uh, Andrews McMeal, which is a, a mainstream uh, publishing house. Yeah. What is, what's it been like to, to kind of see that, that meld of the RPG world with mainstream publishing that really has not happened yeah. in, in the history of it, this hobby? Yeah. I mean, it's very strange. So a little bit of background on this. So Andrews McMeal Publishing, they're here in Kansas City. Most people know them because they syndicate, syndicate comics. Uh, they do Foxtrot, Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, every comic strip that's in the United States is mostly syndicated by us. Um, Andrews McNeil, have, they've always been at kind of the forefront of what's hot. So it's a 50-year-old company as of next year. Um, they recently, in the past two years, kind of grew exponentially because they backed a poet named Rumi Kapoor. And poetry is, we've seen a, a rise in the rise of poetry um, in, in just the publishing world. So they've always been really kind of forward thinking, uh, and they're very agile. And at one point or another, about a year ago, they approached me because I, I, I have a mutual friend through there and they're like, Hey, we want to publish your books. We think RPGs are going to be a thing for us. So we signed contracts. And at the time I was working in an advertising agency as an executive track there and a series of conversations with the board and the C-suite at, at, Andrews McMeal Publishing uh, turned into a job offer. They said, hey, you want to be our executive creative director of games? I'm like, what does that mean? They're like, we don't have a gaming division. You have to build it up yourself. And I'm like, do I got a budget? Do I got people? Awesome, fantastic. Let's make it happen. So I'd spent 16 years in advertising at that point. Or sorry, 15 years in advertising at that point. So I left my, my career path to do this full time. And entering into a traditional publisher who wants to now do games, you know, they're kind of relying on me to drive a lot of that. Um, basically, we're building a business. 
um, over the past. I've, I've been there for six months now. Uh, we've done very well. We've succeeded. We've exceeded. We've succeeded in ways that I didn't think that were possible. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Anders McMeal has been in the traditional publishing world for so long. They have the sales connections, the printing connections, the distribution chains, the talent that's at the company, the right hires. I was hired there. They made an, another strategic hire for Chris Waldron, who came from Cartoon Network. They're developing games and crosswords and crazy stuff like um, now, uh, which is this whole other division that I'm loosely part of as well. But um, they're growing in new ways, and they have all these years and decades of experience um, in reaching the right distribution channels and how to put books in Target and Barnes & Noble and Walmart and all these things you wouldn't expect to find RPGs. And now you can find Zweihander there. It's super weird. Um, <laughs> but 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 more importantly, you know, they, they've kind of mastered the traditional publishing world. The publishing world, as many people know, you know, syndication is kind of is not so hot anymore. AMU's cornered that market. We continue to sell, you know, things like, you know, comic strips and books and poetry and all kinds of other fun stuff, too. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the guy who writes Foxtrot, Bill Amend, he sits like three three tables down from me. He's in once a week to fulfill orders for his, like, Jason's Lucky D20. Like, the D20 is all the 20s on all the side. Like, he sits right down there. I'm like, I grew up reading his stuff. It's so weird. And... And they've got they've got all these wonderful creators and a diverse group of creators. Um, more importantly, um, which is one of the reasons why I went there because a very a very very diverse group of authors and creators they work with, including inside the company. So that was one of the values that I really was intrigued by and why I joined. One of the reasons I joined them, but um, because they have that power diversity, the power of you know a lot of people who understand the industry a lot of young people there too who are who are kind of new ideas innovative digital first sort of stuff they've helped Zweihander and our games division grow very quickly getting a foothold very quickly in fact into an industry that is tough to break into as any indie rpg creator can can attest to it's very very tough we're not competing against D by any means but we'd love to have part of that market share right mm -hmm. um so you know, as a traditional publisher, they have, because they start out as a publishing company, not as a game company, like a lot of game companies do, they have those established connections and those relationships that have really enabled them to, in a lot of ways, help us succeed in ways I didn't think that we could. Um, and it continues to grow. Uh, our, we're not showing any signs of stopping. Uh, there are a lot of games in the wings. We're talking to some really, really well-known creators about doing RPGs for us. I can't talk about who they are yet. I, I wish I could, um, mm -hmm. but um, because it is that first, it's one of the first traditional publishers to break into games, and the first six months has looked very, very good uh, from a, from a monetary perspective. Um, but as for like a wish fulfillment perspective for myself, it feels great. I mean, um, I would have never thought anything like this would ever happen. This is the, it's the craziest thing. It's like a dream job. I mean, who can complain about making games full time? I mean, it's like it's what I would never imagine this would happen. And, and if they hadn't had that experience, I don't think I would have made the jump. I don't think I would have went anywhere else besides AMU. I, I never, I, I can't imagine ever going to Wizards of the Coast. I can never imagine going to any other company because I was small potatoes, right? But mm -hmm. um, I had enough experience in publishing my own books. I'd already moved 68,000 copies on my own. Um, and I because I worked in marketing and advertising, I had a go-to-market plan for Zweihander to grow up very, very quickly, very fast my experience kind of lends i guess you know kind of at force multiplier right take mm -hmm. traditional publisher marry it with like a really 
hungry and aggressive marketer who understands RPGs, understands audiences, and really loves games, and bring those things together, and you have this halo effect over the entire organization to say, now AMU, Interesting Being Universal, or publishing, if you will, is doing games, and we're doing it well. So, um, it, it you know, it, it's really a blessing. It's, uh, it's crazy to work alongside all these talented people. Um, it's crazy that AMU is now enabling Grim Parallel Studios to make a lot of new things. Um, the people who play around my game table every Wednesday continue to are, are supported by AMU. They're freelancers for them. We continue to make stuff. Uh, that relationship has not gone away, despite the fact that I now work there full time uh, as a, you know as an, an executive. Um, and it's it's just wonderful. It's it's the it's the it's the greatest thing in the world. I never, I'm 42, and I'm like I hate to make games for a living. It feels it feels weird. It feels fake still. It doesn't feel right, or it doesn't feel right. It just feels unreal. Um, but um, I'm I'm incredibly pleased uh, that they made the choice to do so, and 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 made that choice it chose me, I suppose, for that matter too. Um, it's it's really uh, it's really strange. <laughs> gotcha. Well, well, Daniel, thank you so much for for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. It's been really cool uh, talking to you about about some of these things. What I'm going to do here is for this last little bit. I'm going to turn this over to you. Anything you want to promote, anything like that, go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for, for having me on the show. Um, and I know we ran over on time. I have a tendency to talk a lot. I'm not any time crunch, so I hope I didn't put you in a pickle uh, by pushing past an hour. Um, but, you know, I would... I would I would say this, and I, and I tell everybody this, you know, at the end of these segments, it's like playing and learning a new RPG is tough, right? Like, get a game master trying to bring players on board, trying a new game is really really hard, and it's a tough ask because we know it's like, hey, we're learning this whole new set of rules and make some new stuff. Because most people just will be like, nah, can we just go back to playing D and D? Um, and that's okay and that's fine. But if if you want it, my my my, you know, if if you're a game master and you're and you're you're interested in Zweihander and you want to run it for your players. The only the only thing you need to do, you don't even need to agree to run a game. Just take one of your game nights, sit down for an hour, hour and a half, print out some character sheets and make characters. It just make characters with the players. Everybody makes a character around the table, talk about who they are, and then see if you want to play Zweihander. Because I think, or I want to believe, uh, that this act of creating a character with the randomization method, despite not knowing how to, quote, play the game, will be enough to hook people, at least to intrigue them. Um, and I'm and I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. You know, if you're a game master and you want to play Zweihander or get your players to play it, email me uh, at daniel at grimunparalous.com. I will send you the PDF for free so that you can bring it to your players at your game table so you all can try it. Even if you don't play it, the only thing I ask in return is for you to email me back later or tag me on social media and tell me about the characters you made. Uh, but I'll give you the PDF completely for free just to try it out because I'm a strong believer in that the way that you can bring people into a new game is just simply to say, hey, let's let's create characters one night. We don't have to play the game. We don't have to roll dice. We don't have to get in a fight you know, in the game. You don't have to learn the fight mechanics. Let's just create characters and see what happens. Um, and and I'm willing to help out with that. I'm a, you know, I, I want people to play as Y-Hander. I want people to try it. Um, and, I'm will, and, and I want to do things that are creative and interesting and new in the industry. And I feel that offering PDFs to game masters who want to try the game uh, just shoot me an email, daniel at grimperilous.com. I will send it to you 24 hours later. I'll send you both a standard PDF and a mobile optimized PDF so you can use your PDF on your phone. It's built like an app, so it's easier to use than just a standard PDF. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's yours. 
just drop me an email and tell me about your character. That'd be great. Yeah, I, I got my copy through Drive-Thru RPG, uh, but but yes, that, that mobile-optimized PDF is a godsend. Thank you God. for for having the foresight to do that. Yeah, well, let me send you a physical book after this. Uh, shoot, me your, <laughs> shoot me your postal address. I'll drop you a book so we ensure that you have you have the real feel of the book. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, Daniel, again, thank you for coming on the show, guys. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, next week, we're taking a break for the holiday. Uh, when we come back at the uh, the beginning of December, we're going to have uh, a guest on the show who's starting up a podcast where she interviews your D&D characters. Her name is Brianna Jean. The podcast is Tales of Adventure, and I'm really excited to talk with her about this. Gather round and listen to tales of great adventure and brave heroes. Tales of daring individuals fighting monsters and claiming treasure. Tales of bards trying to get into the pants of savage beasts to avoid losing a fight. Tales of people drinking beer, eating pizza, and rolling dice. Tales of people losing their minds over the things that happen to people who only exist in their mind. This is Roland Bones, and I am Ryan Howard.